Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey y'all, welcome to The Nod, a black culture podcast brought to you by Blackness's biggest fans. I'm Eric Eddings. And I am Brittany Luce. And today we have our final installment of Best of The Nod as chosen by you, our listeners. Yes, and this one is a good one. So let's get to it. Hey guys, my name is Alan Hobson. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And I've finished listening to the two-part Heston episodes. Let me just say, first off, that that's a great, great example of black history. And it's a great look at the type of stories that we quite frankly don't get taught in our history books. Just hearing the story of resilience and ambition and and just a goal to break free of the chains, not just physical but mental, that's something that is very inspiring to me personally. Great job on those two episodes. You, You killed it. Just absolutely killed it. It was an absolute pleasure listening to it. Absolute pleasure. If we could only have more stories like this. Great work. Great job. Love what you're doing. Keep up the great work. Be easy, y'all. Peace. Today I'm going to tell you a story about a plantation. It was called Cooley Me, and on it there used to be two homes. One was the big house. It was the house the plantation was known for, this massive, white, three-story home, shaped kind of like a cross. The Harstons lived there. They were the masters of the plantation, known for their immense wealth. And just a short walk from the big house was a very different home. It was a log cabin, no running water, no bathroom. It housed up to 11 people, a family, the Hairstons. They tended the plantation's crops, mostly corn and cotton. They also worked in the big house, cooking the Harstons' meals and cleaning for them. A black family serving a rich white family on a plantation is a familiar story. But this isn't that, because these two families, they shared this relationship with one serving the other way past the end of slavery. Through Reconstruction, through both world wars, through Brown versus Board, Martin Luther King's rise and assassination, all the way to the 1970s. Today on The Nod, we tell the story of these two families that for 100 years after the Civil War seemed trapped in amber, and about one woman who broke out of that amber and then shattered it for everyone else. When I was born, I lived in what was the log cabin. In 1942, Everly Hairston was born on the Cooley Mee Plantation. It was the very same plantation where her ancestors had been enslaved. That cabin that Everly grew up in had likely been on the property since the days of Reconstruction. In that big room was my mom and dad was in one bed with one of the, the babies, And then in the other bed was um, probably uh, three of us sleeping. And then one child always stayed in the bedroom with my grandparents if you went on the other side of the house. So why was Everly living on the Cooley Mee Plantation decades after the end of slavery? Well, before I can answer that, we've got to go back, way back, back in the time. The Hairstons were a family who immigrated from Scotland to the American South, and they made their names running a huge network of plantations. 
The family was said to have owned some 42 plantations in Virginia, North Carolina, and Mississippi. And they enslaved some 10,000 people. Their wealth and their slave holdings earned them the title the Rockefellers of the South. This all changed with the Civil War. The enslaved were now free. And with their freedom, Black people all over the South got the opportunity to choose a surname. Many chose the names of their former masters. And that's how the Black Harrisons, Everly's ancestors, came to share a last name with the white family that once owned them. They would call us Hairstons when I was living on the plantation, and they, their name was Hoston. <laughs> I just thought that was so interesting. <laughs> Preferred that designation, like that they were Harstons and they were you were Harston, and they called us, and we were Hairstons. But the end of the Civil War in no way meant the end of plantation life. Black people at the time had no money and nowhere to go, so most of them stayed put and worked as sharecroppers. And then in 1915, the first wave of the Great Migration started. Millions of Black people moved into cities and to the North to start again. This is a story we've all heard before, the one in our textbooks about Black people finding a better life. But the one we don't often hear is the story of those who didn't migrate, the story of those who stayed. And that's the story of Everly's family. During our childhood in the 50s, Everly's life on the plantation still had many traces of life before the Civil War. Everly's family still worked for the same family, the Harstons, who'd passed the plantation down through generations. When Everly was a kid, the guy in charge was Judge Peter Harston. In addition to running the plantation, he was an actual judge. Everly's grandfather was a butler and valet for Judge Peter's family. Or as Everly put it, He was what they call the house nigger. You know, he did all the work in the house. He made the biscuits because that's something they would serve every morning. He always tended to the garden. He wore the flowers. He took fresh flowers in every day uh, and ra- arranged them. Um, if um, the plantation owner went out and, and grocery shopped, he would meet her at the car and uh, bring in all the groceries, that kind of thing. Her dad was a sharecropper of the plantation. He would plant crops, mostly cotton and corn. And Everly and her siblings would have to help. Work on the plantation came first, especially during the harvest season. I hated it. I I was so, I hated it with a passion. We would have to stay out of school, meaning my older brother, older sister and I. We would have to stay out of school usually two consecutive weeks at a time to pick cotton. And, um... I'd get behind in school. I hated that. I hated that. She hated missing school for weeks on end when no one else in her class did. She told me that she hated the fact that the cotton they picked, when it was finally sold, the Harstons would take 70 cents of every dollar, and her family would only get 30. Everly's family's cut was barely enough to live on. And on top of that, one of her sisters had a chronic liver condition, and her care was expensive. Everyone had to do a second and sometimes third job around town. Everly would take Fridays off from school to help her mom clean the homes of white families. They were paid less than minimum wage, and they were treated how black people everywhere were treated, terribly. One Friday, Everly hit a breaking point. She was tasked with ironing what felt like an impossibly high stack of clothes. I'm ironing, and I'm ironing. The owner of the house, she came in to me and just filled up the basket even more and said to me, when it's time for you to eat, you can go out in the garage. Well, that got to me. You can go out in the garage. And I'm thinking, I'm here. We're going to clean your kitchen, clean your dishes. My hands are going to be on those. And you want me to go in the garage to eat? I was so angry. (laughs) So I'm now in the room where I'm ironing. And I'm ironing. And the more I ironed, it seemed like the more was in the basket. So I said, I'll fix her. So I just sat the iron down on a blouse and scorched it. Scorched it. The blouse was burnt to a crisp. And so, <laughs> and so I took that and put it in the bottom of the basket. <laughs> oh, God, I did. I really did. Racism was everywhere. And for a lot of Black people, the only thing you could do was internalize it and let out your frustration and anger in these small, private acts. For me, this story helps explain why Everly's family might have stayed on the plantation 
against the incredibly low bar for white people at the time, the Harsons didn't seem so bad. I think my grandfather felt like they were contributing to us. So why ask for more? Plus, Me was the economic engine for the entire county, which made its owner, Judge Peter, a powerful man. No matter the conditions, Everly's grandfather thought that they were lucky for the jobs and housing the Harstons had given them. I mean, what other white people were doing that? My grandfather was always praising them. And my grandmother, if I may be so blunt, she would say, oh, you need to stop it. They ain't shit. <laughs> <laughs> And it wasn't just her grandmother who didn't feel like the Harstons should be up on some pedestal. Sometimes aunts and uncles who'd left the plantation would come back to visit. And on these get-togethers, they'd sit and rehash the same point. They would say um, things like, well, they're not really doing anything for you. You know, you, you are sacrificing your whole life for them. And my grand- grandfather would say, boy, you don't understand. Often an argument would break out. But there's a segment of the family that wouldn't talk about their treatment at all. Everly's parents. I do believe that my father didn't like it, but he held it in. He didn't talk about it. And so you learn to just not say anything, to pretend that it's not happening. It's not, it's not good. I mean, do you think that's just a survival instinct? Sure. At that point? it was their way of surviving. Even Everly's feelings about the White Harstons were complicated. After all, the families were close. Every Christmas, we would go over to the plantation house when, when I was growing up. And we would sing Christmas carols together. And it was like a family affair. She told Brittany and me that she also liked the time she spent with the judge. Occasionally, I would miss the bus on purpose. So Mr. Peter would drive me to school. He was a judge in Moxville. And so I could ride to school with him. And what did you two talk about when, when, on the you drive? Know, he asked me, how was I doing? Just talking to me. He showed me that he was interested in me and who I was and what I was about. Was that different than the way that most adults talked to you when you were that yes. age? Yes. Most adults, gal, sit down. What you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, get on out there and, and get that water down. Yes, sure, it was very different. So Everly could understand where her grandfather was coming from, but she didn't agree with his conclusion that they shouldn't ask for more. She remembers the day where she realized she wanted more for herself. It was the fall harvest during Everly's senior year in high school. Everly was making her way through a massive cotton row, dragging her sack behind her. I was in the field with my brother and my sister, and. They were always saying, come on, you know, come on, catch up. And while they'd done this dozens of times before, Everly was still scared of the things she knew were lurking in the fields. I was always afraid of the bugs, always looking around to see if there was a snake. So while she's picking cotton, she's scanning the ground, terrified of what she might find. I'm shaking my toe uh, toe sack, and, and so I thought, okay, I got to do this. You know, I just got to do this so we can go back to school tomorrow. So I just kept on going. Well, 10 or 15 yards down that cotton row, I saw a brown snake. So I yelled to my brother, it's a copperhead! Most of the snakes that lived on the plantation were harmless. But copperheads are venomous and nothing to play with. My brother came back to investigate and he saw it. But everywhere we would look around then, there was another snake. So all of us then took our toe sacks off, uh, drugged them with us, and we ran as fast as we could until we reached the trailer that was parked at the beginning of the cotton row and climbed onto, I did, I climbed onto a bag on the very top, just trembling and shaking and praying inside, oh my God, please, there must be a better way of life for me. Before this moment, Everly could only see two possible options for her future if she stayed at Me. Option one, staying at the plantation, picking cotton, living with her family, making just enough money to survive. Option two, working in town, cooking, cleaning, ironing, eating in a garage so as not to disturb the white family she was serving. Sitting on that bag of cotton, she realized she needed to invent another future. 
She needed to do something her parents, grandparents, and ancestors hadn't. That day, she made a promise to herself. She was going to leave. All I wanted to do at that point was just get away. And I knew that so many people that I knew older than me um, had just stayed on plantations or stayed in the area. And that was their way of life. And that's not what I wanted for me. I knew that there had to be a better way of life for me. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert, and I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Getting out of Coolie Me was tough. It required money and a plan. Everly didn't even know where to start. But one day, during her senior year of high school, she saw something that could be her ticket out. I found a, uh, an article in the Winston-Salem paper asking for live-in maids in um, Hempstead, Long Island. So I answered the ad. It seemed like it was written just for her. Everly could work in New York, far from the reaches of Coolie Me, and save the money she needed in no time. And like that, just two weeks after graduating from high school, Everly was preparing to leave the place she'd call home. Now here I am, all packed up, got my ticket, ready to go to Winston-Salem to get the bus to go to New York. And I'm going by myself. My dad drove me. But one thing, dad didn't say anything. But I knew that he supported me because he didn't object to taking me. See? That was his way of showing me that he, he was pleased with what I was doing at 17, leaving the plantation. But her grandparents hadn't come around. My grandmother said to me, Gail, somebody's going to hit you in your head and you'll be back here. Inside, I was thinking, you'll see. You will see. Everly boarded her Greyhound bus. She was leaving behind the quiet country roads, acres of open land, and the slow pace of Southern life. She took the 16-hour trip to the loud, crowded, and rushed tempo of New York City. When she got off the bus, Everly dragged her luggage directly to the employment agency's headquarters on 42nd Street in Manhattan. In 1959, Everly was making a move that many Black people before her had made. She was leaving behind the South and all its history for opportunities in the North. And the opportunity that Everly wanted to pursue was becoming a nurse, she could help her sister, whose chronic illness had now become terminal. Her plan was to work as a maid, to make enough money to go to nursing school. The $35 a week that Everly could make as a maid in New York was a huge upgrade over what she could make in North Carolina. Walking into the massive room, a receptionist asked her to take a seat next to dozens of other Black women. Men started pouring into the room. They'd walk down the line of women and then tell the receptionist which woman they'd like to interview. It was interesting because the, the people that were there, mostly men, Jewish men, they were looking and interviewing girls who were red bones, if you will, first. I thought, you know what? Prejudice is everywhere. Red bone is a nickname for light-skinned black women. You know, those kinds of things just were you know, shocks 
it's like shocking. So here I am now, and the dark-skinned girls were being left behind, and they were choosing all of us who were red bones. And so this guy chose me. He lived in Brooklyn. And he said to me, well, the agent said to me, what we do is you'll go with the um, uh, person who interviewed you. They'll take you to, he'll take you to his home, meet his wife and the children, and they'll let you know what your responsibilities are. And then from there, you come back here, we sign all the papers, and the job is yours. Well, I went with him to his home. On our way back, he takes his hand, and he touched me on my thigh. And he said to me, on your days off, you'll be with me. Something inside of me was, there was a pain that went from my mouth all the way down, honestly, to my stomach and seemed like it paralyzed me. It's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. All I could hear was what my grandmother said. I'm thinking, how am I going to get out of this? It was an impossible situation. Everly left the plantation to take control of her life. But here she was trapped. Again, she didn't have control. She racked her brain for a way to escape. I thought about jumping out of the car. I didn't know what to do. So I said nothing, absolutely nothing to him. He was parking the car. And so while he was, you know, before he got into the agency, I went and hid in the bathroom. I stood up on the toilet. And I mean, it seemed like hours and hours. And finally, I hear them say, all the girls who didn't get selected, we're going to Hempstead. Get your things. We must go now. It's time to get on the bus. Well, I ran out. The man had left. And the lady said to me, oh, my goodness, we were looking for for you. We thought you had, you know, we thought you had gone. And I didn't say anything. I just got on the bus. This didn't seem like the new life she'd envisioned. But the only option was heading home to Cooley Me to face her family. And Everly felt she couldn't go back. The next morning, Everly went back to the agency and talked with a different family. But this time, not only did the husband come, the wife came too, and they chose me. I was one of the first ones that was chosen. It was the Brunsteins. And they told me that they had a little girl, three years old, who had a terminal illness. She had a, a kidney disease. And I said to them, I, 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 I can do this job because my younger sister has a liver disease, Uh, and it's terminal. And I got hired. They hired me right there. They took me to their home. It was a good match. Everly worked for the Bronsteins that entire summer. It was everything she could hope for. She was taking care of people. She had her own bedroom and her own bathroom for the first time in her life. She had saved all the money she made for school. When the summer ended, she went back to North Carolina to get ready for nursing school. She'd already sent in her application and just had a few tests to take on campus. One of the tests she had to take was an eye exam. It was a formality. Everly failed it. I mean, I just, I, I just so, I was so emotional. And, you know, I was crying. I said, but let me try again. Let, let me try again, because I can, I, I can see. And they said, I'm sorry. You know, you failed the exam. You cannot, you cannot, you, you, you cannot get into school. Everly had been struggling with her vision for years, but in secret. She hadn't told anyone about it, not even her parents. The reason I didn't do anything, because I was ashamed. I didn't want anyone else to know. I was hiding it. I was in denial. I didn't want people laughing at me or making fun of me. Everly didn't know it at the time, but she had retinitis pigmentosa, or RP for short. RP is a genetic disease with no cure. It means that over the course of your life, you'll go partially or fully blind. Because of this, the one thing she had wanted since she was a child, to be a nurse, was now out of reach. So she made a new plan. She decided that she'd become a teacher. She figured a classroom would be well lit and her vision wouldn't be an issue. 
she went to college, and after she graduated, she landed a job teaching high school in New Jersey. By 1970, Everly was actually living the life she dreamed about when she was 17. She was married, she had a kid, she had a place with plumbing and electricity, and she had a job that she loved. Most importantly, she wasn't on the Cooley Mead plantation anymore, but, I mean, she'd still go back to visit her family on the holidays. And she'd swing by the big house and see the White Harstons as well. But each time she'd go back, it was a reminder of all the things she loved about her new life. But things didn't last, and suddenly took a turn for the worse. Her marriage fell apart. She was forced to resign from her teaching job because of her vision. And several years later, she went completely blind. I think I went into a shell. I didn't talk about it to anyone. I didn't want to talk about it. I I didn't know how I was going to make it. I didn't know how I was going to survive. From an early age, Everly seemed to want nothing more than choices. She hated the plantation because it robbed her and her family of choices. And now that she had completely lost her vision, she wondered what kind of life she would live. Going back to Cooley Me would have been the easier path, but Everly would never take it. That's what had happened to my parents and my grandparents. They gave up, and I was determined to never give up. So Everly did what she'd become so good at over the years. She found another way to resist the plantation's pull. She thought about other jobs she could have, other ways she could help people, and she found something. I figured you don't have to be able to see to sit and talk to people so I can get a job as a counselor. So I went back to college. How did I do it? I went to school at nights. I used cassette tapes because I couldn't see and recorded the lectures. And that's how I was able to go to college and got a degree in counseling. She spent years counseling others on drug and alcohol abuse. It wasn't exactly her dream of being a nurse, but it played on Everly's biggest strength. You know what it was like? Fighting all the way. I used to ask myself or say, God, is this my mission in life to continue to advocate for self and others? Will I spend all of my life fighting for what's right? Everly now works as the president of the California chapter of the National Federation of the Blind. I had to fight all the way. But I never gave up. Fighting, resistance, takes many forms. Everly might have felt like her parents had just accepted life on Cooley Me. But the reality was her father had been plotting his escape as well. He'd been saving every extra penny. And more than 100 years after the Civil War ended, Everly's family moved off the plantation. My father um, purchased some land. And back then, I'm sure it was very cheap. And he decided he was going to build a house. And he moved my grandparents with him. He provided for them in, his, in their new home. My grandparents were no longer working in the plantation house, and neither were my... Well, you know, we weren't sharecroppers anymore. It was beautiful. It was, it was freedom. It was a sense of dignity. For the first time ever, no Hairstons were serving any Harstons at Cooley Me. It was 1972. Shortly after Everly's family moved, scores of Hairstons started coming together for a family reunion. The very first one, it was in Lexington, North Carolina, at the YMCA. (laughs) (laughs) And they served barbecue sandwiches. There were Hairstons from all over. And Harstons. And Judge Peter was there. Just getting together as a family was, was great. That's right. Family. Some of the white Harstons, including Judge Peter, ended up being regulars at the reunions. Being a Hairston is a weird thing. Like, this last name. It was assigned by history, not necessarily by blood. And the Harstons? They're a part of that history and that family. And as far as any Hairston was concerned, the Harston family had been good to them. Their relationship wasn't what we usually think about when we think about master and slave, employee 
and employers. At least, that's what most of the Hairstons at the reunion believed. Until one day, 20 years later, Everly, who never stopped fighting, picked a new fight. And you could have heard a pin drop. It was like, I don't believe she did that. But I had said it. That's coming up in part two. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello, um, my name is Erin from Illinois, and uh, I am a white person, TM. Um, <laughs> I My favorite episode has to be the episode about the Harrisons. It, it hit me really hard, and I think it told a, a really important and intense story about how our past is so intensely connected to present day um we're we're just replicating awful atrocities that we've been performing um for the history of our country um and and it was one story that tied it all together but it also was a beautiful representation of one woman's resistance um there's some damn beautiful reporting and storytelling In the first half of the show, we introduce you to Everly Hairston, a woman who fought to leave the plantation where her ancestors had been enslaved. In part two, we look at how Everly's fight didn't end there, how she found herself digging up a dark history that two families preferred to keep buried. See, you would think that there would be bad blood between the Hairstons and the Harstons, but they had reunions together. They stayed in touch. Even Everly, her family spent Christmases with them. Judge Peter, who ran the plantation when she was growing up, Everly loved when he would drive her to school. Even Everly's parents, who were sharecroppers for the white Harstons, wouldn't speak ill of them. But how could it have gotten this way? And what would it take for it all to come undone? If you want to understand the messy, tangled history of the Harstons and the Harstons, there's this one story that's a good place to start. It's from the end of the Civil War, when the Harstons were still some of the most prominent slave owners in the South. One of their biggest plantations was called Cooley Me, and one of the slaves on Cooley Me was named John Goolsby. He served Judge Peter's grandfather. John Goolsby was a very important slave. Henry Winsack is a historian who wrote a book about the Harriston family. He was a valet, and he was kind of the head factotum on the plantation before the war, the Civil War. And he went off to the Civil War as an aide to Peter Wilson Harston. In April of 1865, Goolsby was forced to make a choice. The Union Army was marching through the South, raiding and destroying plantations in their path. Cooley Mee was on the horizon. Preparing for their arrival, Goolsby had been trusted with one very important task. As the Yankee column was approaching Coolamee, he loaded up all of the white family silver and, and uh, hid it in a wagon and drove north to another one of their farms. 
You seriously can't underestimate how dangerous this is. This black man was alone in slave territory with a wagon full of things he knew the North wanted to steal. But he rode on. And when he got to the farm, he buried the silver in a vegetable garden. After he had buried it, he was stopped on the way back by a Yankee patrol who threatened him uh, with death if he didn't say where his owners were and uh, if he happened to know the whereabouts of any silver. According to a book that tells this story, the soldiers said that they heard a slave had buried Major Harston silver somewhere nearby, and they suspected it was Goolsby. They said they'd string him up by his thumbs till he told them where he had hid it. And if he didn't tell them where it was, they would string him up by his neck until he couldn't. So Goolsby, he lied. He said, uh, I don't know anything. He told the soldiers that not only did he not know about the silver, he didn't even know Major Harston. And he persuaded them and then went on his way. There's this phrase, blood is thicker than water. It's usually used as like a shorthand for the idea that loyalty to family, your blood, trumps everything. But there's another, less common interpretation of the phrase. The full phrase, some claim, is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Not family blood or genetics, the blood of a covenant, bloodshed in battle, an agreement made when you're fighting on the same side. That's what ties people together. Now, I don't feel like I can presume to know why John Goolsby buried that silver. Was it that he felt loyalty to the Harstons? Was he worried that the South would win and he'd be punished? Was he trying to protect his family? There could honestly be a million explanations. But here's what we do know. That act formed a covenant. That these families are bound together by a common history. And that the history is positive. Benevolent master, loyal servant. Even after the war, John Goosby's children and grandchildren would stay on Kulimi, working for the Harstons. Generations later, one of Goolsby's descendants would be born on the plantation. And she would be the one to finally break that covenant. Her name? Everly Hairston. It was a late summer day in 1996. The Hairstons were flocking to North Carolina for the annual Hairston clan reunion. The three-day celebration culminated in a banquet. More than 500 black Harrisons dressed up in their Sunday best and filed into a massive ballroom. It's like an ode to their ancestry. This is Princess Hairston. Obviously, she's a part of the extended Hairston family. She's actually a friend of mine and introduced us to the story of Everly. Black Harrisons aren't all related by blood, but Princess told us how these reunions bring them together in the spirit of their shared history. They said they would do it once a year, and they were going to invite as many Harristons as they could, uh, whether they were black or white, um, because ultimately they feel that it's part, it's just one family. Black and white. It wasn't just Harristons who were considered a part of this family. It was Harstons too. People like Judge Peter, who'd lived in the big house opposite Everly's family. He would go to these reunions. Now, when black people have reunions, we're there to celebrate the fact that we're together. Slavery tore apart our families and erased our histories. So, like, coming together, it feels like a triumph. So I can't lie, this seemed crazy to me. Like, how could you sit in the same room celebrating with a family that once owned your ancestors? Well, there's one pretty big reason. It's this thing that Judge Peter did that a lot of the Harristons were grateful for. Here's Henry. He wrote a book about the plantation, and the first part of it was the, his family's history and a little bit of the history of the slaves. But much of the book was taken up with a list of all of the slaves that his grandfather had owned, which Judge Peter very laboriously compiled from 20 or 25 different lists. These records date back to the 1800s. Using all this information, the judge built a giant index. And he not only identifies who they are and approximately what year they were born, he identified what fields they worked in in different times of their lives. Did they marry? Did they have children? This is Diana Roman. She's a white descendant of the Harston family. She's been helping digitize the records Judge Peter compiled. What Judge Peter has done is mind-blowing. He's, he's had to literally manually transcribe 
thousands of people. It had to have taken him his entire life. It is so overwhelming when you sit down and you start to look through these ledgers because they're so massive. It was, it was extremely emotional for me. And I'm going to get choked up talking about it now. Um, it just, it just felt like there were hundreds of people looking back at me. I can't imagine my family on either side ever having that much information about where we came from. Like, a window that far back into the past is something most Black American families will just never see. A lot of Harrisons were grateful to have this information, and it made sense that Judge Peter would attend the reunions. He's part of the reason why they can trace their connections. There's also a deeper reason why the Harsons were invited, and that goes back to the Goolsby story. See, that understanding of the benevolent master had turned into an understanding that the Harstons had treated slaves well. The black Harstons that I spoke to uh, almost uniformly said that the oral history in their family was that their slave ancestors were very well treated, very fairly treated by the white Harstons. That's Henry Winsack again. They were very, very good at giving, you know, prepared, potted remarks about how well they loved each other and how well they were treated and they were so glad to see each other. And and so everybody put on a smiley face. But that changed. Everly and her family went to a few reunions in the 80s and 90s. The darker side of their history was mostly unspoken, hidden underneath the celebrations and pleasantries shared between the Harstons and Harstons. And for 20 years at these reunions, it was surprisingly chill. But there was a lot no one talked about how the White Harstons had plumbing and Everly's family didn't, how White Harstons took 70 cents of every dollar earned on the cotton that Everly's family picked, how there were a lot of other stories from deep in the past that contradicted the narrative that they were all one big happy family. All of this went unsaid until one year, Everly Harston would utter two words that would drag what everyone thought was history into the present. That's coming up after the break. At a Hairston clan reunion in 1996, Everly was a guest of honor. And that night, she'd be giving the keynote address at the celebratory banquet. She was seated at the same table as the judge and his family. At the time, Everly was giving speeches pretty often about her life. And so she got up and started to give the same speech that she'd given many times before. I was talking about how I had succeeded in life, you know, some of the things that I had done. So I told that story about how we were up in the fields, 10 or 15 yards down that cotton row, I saw a brown snake. So I yelled to my brother, Copperhead. I climbed onto a bag on the very top, just trembling and shaking and praying inside. Oh, my God, please, there must be a better way of life for me. But instead of just saying what I said when I was up in the fields. She turned to the judge and said, I thought and I thought that there had to be a better way of life for me, Mr. Peter. And you could have heard a pin drop. It was a shocking moment for a number of reasons. One was, you know, a black person just didn't speak to a white person in public that way or even in private. It was like, I don't believe she did that. But I had said it. To be clear, the it was very slight. Like, a casual observer might have missed it. All she said was, Mr. Peter. But by doing that, Everly was calling out years of mistreatment that her family had experienced. And even more than that, to the people in that room, she was highlighting the thing that everyone had gotten so good at ignoring. Just how messed up the relationship between the Hairstons and the Harstons really was. Like, no one talked about it, but look at that narrative of good treatment. That story didn't hold up when you really looked at it. Henry told us of reports he'd heard of especially poor treatment by the Harstons, 
One enslaved man was beaten and locked in a barn without food or water for three days. One coolie sharecropper with a hernia had to kneel at the Harston's back door to make his weekly payments to Judge Peter's father. And I mean, it was slavery. Like, even if they were treated quote-unquote well, what does that even mean? With just two words, Everly had dragged those memories back into the light. In that moment, what made you say that? What made you say it that way? Because here he was sitting there all proud of the fact that he was there at the reunion. And yet, what I had to go through, or we, my family, had to go through to live on that plantation, working for little or no money. They got 70% and we got 30% after picking cotton all day. That's what went through my mind. There's a better, better way of life for me. I don't have to work on your plantation <laughs> and make 30 cents out of a dollar when you get 70% and we're doing all the work. I had broken through years and years of quietness, of silence, people not talking about what it was like to be on the plantation. And just by merely saying there had to be a better life for me, Mr. Peter, that broke it. And what, what was uh, Peter's reaction? Like, how did he, how did he respond? He turned completely red. And he got up, he and his wife, and they left. Judge Peter and his family left before the banquet was even over. But lots of other Harrisons came up to Everly after her speech to congratulate her. Oh, a lot of people were hugging me and thanking me. What a beautiful speech. No one mentioned the fact that I had said, there must be a better way of life for me, Mr. Peter. And I didn't realize at that moment that there were some people who didn't like it. In the weeks and months that followed, Everly started hearing from other Hairstons who felt like those two words had opened up an old wound that nobody wanted to talk about. The people that I cared about the most were critical. They criticized me. Princess Hairston, my friend who introduced me to Everly, has a theory about why nobody really talked about these things before. It's about survival. When the information is passed down from people who grew up in slavery, to the next generation who is post-Civil War, they only tell them the good things about what happened. They never tell them the horrible things that happened. Well, I don't want this next generation to know because I don't want them to ever get upset about it. I don't want them to ever speak negatively to the white hostins and we lose something or, we, you know, we can't find housing or we can't find a job now or the whole town might come against us. And so Black people harbored a lot of pain. The Hairstons actually did get money from the Harstons, scholarship money. So maybe that's a part of the reason why people were upset with Everly. But I could see other reasons why people would be angry with her for digging this history back up. The way I look at it, the silence had gotten them to this point. You know, the idea of white descendants of slave owners coming to the Black family reunion, it's post-racial and it's exciting even. I imagine people felt like, hey, you know, we got here. We made it. Isn't the thing to do now to just move past it all? But to Everly, moving past it wasn't enough. They said, that's the way it was then. Those are the times we lived in. Okay, so what? I don't make excuses. It was the time that we were living in. But was it right? And what's wrong with saying it was wrong? I lived through it, but was it right? Two years after the reunion, Everly went back to Cooley Me with her in-laws to show them where she grew up. It was the first time since the big speech that Everly and Judge Peter had a private moment together. Well, when I got to the front door, he met me there because I had called ahead and said we would be there, which I always would do. And he said to me, come on in, young lady, because I have something to say to you. So I didn't like that tone. I'm thinking, oh, 
what is this all about? So he kind of escorted me into the living room. So I walked in with him. He said, Everly, I treated William and Charming quite well. William and Charming were Everly's grandparents. I said, I disagree. Now, nobody would disagree with Peter. <laughs> I disagree. When you hope for what they could have and should have given your family, like, what does that look like? Do you think they should have given some of the land? A house. But a house that had running water and a bathroom. Decency. I said, they worked for you all of their life. All of their life. What do they have to show for it? Nothing. They don't have anything because they gave you their complete life. No pension, no money in the bank, nothing. I disagree with you. And so he said to me, they couldn't do any better. Boy, did that hurt. I said to him, perhaps they couldn't, but you made them think that they couldn't do any better. In 2007, Judge Peter passed away. He was 93. His son sold the plantation in 2015. When Brittany and I went to visit Everly this summer, she was living with her family, her son, his wife, and three grandkids. Together, they share a custom-built home overlooking the Hollywood Hills. Everyone has their own room. In that beautiful house, there's a window frame hanging on the wall. It's from the cabin where Everly grew up on the Coolimi Plantation. Her son ripped it out for her and hung it up in their new home. It hangs next to a picture of the original cabin. It's a reminder of how far they've come. Judge Peter said that Everly's family couldn't do any better than the life that he and the White Harstons provided them. But Everly is living proof that what the judge said simply isn't true. Thanks for listening to our Best of the Nod series. And thank you to all the listeners that voted and sent in voicemails. We loved hearing from you. And we will be back next week with a brand new episode of The Nod. So don't miss it. Be there. Be ready. These episodes were produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce, Kate Parkinson Morgan, James T. Green, and Wallace Mack. Our senior producer is Sara Abdurrahman. We were edited by Emmanuel Berry, Annie Rose Strasser, and Jorge Just, with editing help on today's stories from Catherine St. Louis, Emily Ulbricht, and Alex Bloomberg. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Engineering from Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. For additional music in the show, check the show notes. 